Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Romans 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it's that last phrase this morning that I want to focus your attention on is that Christ was raised from the dead so that we too might walk in newness of life. And just the idea that the gospel makes everything new for us. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word that is in our hearts and in our hearing today. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. It gives us direction and it transforms us. And we thank you today for your word. I ask you today because I know that you're Spirit already anoints your word. I don't have to pray for that, but I pray for your anointing in this place that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand and receive your word. We ask it today in Christ's name. Amen. So since we've been here the last few weeks, I've talked about what it means to be justified by faith, that the sinner stands before God guilty of our sin. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. And God looks at us and through the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came and is exalted as King of our lives and King of uh, everything, uh, that good news allows us to place our faith and our confidence and our allegiance into Jesus Christ, thereby allowing God to count us righteous. So we stand righteous as a status, as a state, uh, because of the grace and the mercy of God. And I have attempted the last few weeks to show that how this and the new birth and all of this are just absolutely intertwined in Scripture. And today I want to talk about what that means for us, that new birth leads to new life. Now, people like to get new stuff. We're coming upon the Christmas season. This is the holidays and everybody likes to receive new stuff. Even if you've given your whole Christmas list and you kind of know what you're getting, it's still exciting to tear open the package and just know that I have something new to play with. Uh, I have something new to use. It's just, it's our human nature. But the newness of stuff wears off and this is why we have to go and get more new stuff. I spent 13 years working in retail and operations management and there was a poster in the training room uh, by one of the, I think it was by the CEO, and all it simply said was, people like to shop because they like to feel good about themselves. And that was kind of the whole driving force, is help people feel good about themselves so they will come and give us their credit card and buy more stuff. Uh, really simple philosophy, but they were a $6 billion a year company that kind of built a business around that, that model. Just we like to help people feel good about themselves by giving us their money so we can give them new stuff. But we get new stuff, it's necessary because new stuff becomes old and it wears out. The car that is wore out 
uh, at one time someone drove it off the lot new and they were excited about this car. The, the new car smell, even though the smell is actually toxic adhesives, those carcinogens flowing through our nose let us know that I am driving a new car. Everything that was for sale at a yard sale uh, that everybody's giving a quarter for, at one time somebody paid full price in a store and said, I really want that new thing. Our nature, our human nature, allows us to be enamored by the new and the novel. And the idea of this, old and new, is used throughout the Bible to describe God's redemptive purpose in our life. And we talk about being born again, and we call it the new birth. The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old and new. Uh, probably a better word for that is covenant. There was an old covenant and there was a new covenant, and those two sections of the Bible uh, represent and reflect that. Uh, as much as I love to study Scripture, probably what I love to do more than anything is to get together with new believers, with new people who are just coming into faith and start out explaining the Bible. And the first place I'll start is, okay, there's, there's two parts to this. There's an old and there's a new. And together they form the whole Bible. We in our Bible study last two Wednesday nights ago, uh, we talked about John 3 where Jesus talks about the new birth. Had a wonderful Bible study, uh, by the way, in that, uh, in that time. It was a, a great topic of conversation. But the beginning of John 3 is a conversation between G Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. <clears throat> and what we witness is Jesus introducing a new covenant that allowed both Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the executioners made every attempt to strip Christ of His dignity. We see paintings of Jesus hanging on the cross, and He always has this convenient cloth wrapped around Him, and that just wasn't how it was actually done. We've probably never seen a true reflection of this because Jesus was crucified. He died the death of a common criminal, and one of the things that they did was to shame and humiliate them, and they crucified them completely naked. Jesus hung on a cross, nude, for all the world to see. It was part of His humiliation. And they watched Him die. Everybody that watched Him die witnessed Him suffering the cruelest of deaths. Crucifixion still to date is one of the cruelest ways that a person can die. That was all apparent. What was not apparent was that the transition taking place between the Old and the New Covenant. Every sin that you and I have ever committed or ever will commit hung upon Jesus on that cross. Satan was defeated, sin was conquered, and death lost its dominion over men and women. It was the single most victorious day in the history of the universe, and it was framed with the blood of the Son of God. And as if to add an exclamation point to the dawning of this new covenant, the Bible says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So in the temple, the high priest witnessed the veil that separated the most holy place. It's like God reached down and just tore it in two pieces from top to bottom. And it says, And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil separating everybody but the high priest from God's presence tore into two pieces. And this was signifying that in the new covenant, 
Everyone has access to that manifest presence of God. What was once only available for one man one day a year is now available to all of us, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our bodies. And for the first time in God's redemptive plan, people could be holy because they had the Holy Spirit living inside them. So new covenant holiness, because we're all called to be holy, the Bible says, Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Or without holiness no man shall see God. And the problem with that is, is if we equate holiness with morality, then we're all lost because none of us can be ethical enough to be like God. We are holy because we belong to Him, because we have His presence inside of us that transforms us into the image of Christ to live a new life in Jesus Christ. So holiness moved from this Old Testament ritualistic cleansing, all these ceremonies they had to go through. It's very complicated. I've never wrapped my head around all of what they had to do in the Old Testament. I mean, it took effort to really figure all this out because if you read Leviticus, you know, your eyes will go cross and you're like, why am I reading this? Why is this relevant to me? And I tell people, at least read it to understand how hard it was to be part of the people of God. I mean, it was very ritualistic, all the sacrifices that had to be made. Uh, but that law was fulfilled in the person of Christ and the, and this is Scripture, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands Colossians 2, all of that was nailed to the cross. Paul said all of those, all that legality Christ nailed to the cross. And so the new covenant did not abolish the eternal moral law of God, but it rather institutes this new expression of God's law through the person of Jesus Christ. So the moral law of God evolved to cover not only the prohibition of outward sinful acts, all that Old Testament stuff, thou shalt not do this, but now it reflects the condition of the heart. So the call to holiness is now a call for our thoughts and our desires and our deeds to be in conformity with the will and the purpose of God. And this cannot be done by mere discipline alone. So we're coming up in another month, New Year's or New Year's resolutions. Gym memberships will skyrocket. Uh, everybody's going to, you know, we're going to change. We're going to do something different in the new year. And by February, most of that has fallen off because we all have a poor track record of doing what we know is right by sheer force of will. Most people don't possess the self-discipline to do that. So to be holy before God is to be dead to our desires and to be alive in Christ. And in the new covenant, the new birth, we are new men and new women in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, we read it as our opening text. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's, here's the question I have for all of us this morning. Because this, what is Paul saying here? Do we identify with the resurrection of Christ through the baptism of His Spirit? His Holy Spirit comes inside of us. His Spirit is making us alive, making us a new creature. Like, is that something that's happening now, or are we already a new creation in Christ? Are we becoming a new creation, or are we already a new creation in Christ? Uh, or is it speaking of a future resurrection? Like someday, like I'm not like Christ now. We say we're Christians, but we're not Christians. I mean, we're not Christ-like. None of us here are exactly like Christ, right? We have a long way to go. So is that newness of life, is that speaking of the future day when Christ is going to return, the resurrection of the dead? The Bible says that corruption puts on incorruption and mortality puts on immortality. Is that when I'm going to walk in newness of life? 
In other words, is it already happened to me or is it something that's going to happen to me? And the answer is yes and yes, it's both. There is coming a day when this fallen creation will be restored back to its original glory. The purposes of God demonstrated in our lives is the beginning of this restoration. We have already started that process. Old things are being made new. I think anybody that comes to faith in Christ can say, after a certain amount of time, I'm not the person that I used to be. I'm not the person I want to be. There is a future me that I want to be like even in this life, but I'm definitely not the person I was. Like I've changed, I've evolved. My thoughts, my habits, my deeds, they're not there, but they're better. We call this sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like God. It's already happening and yet it has not happened. And I think this is really important to get down because all of this language is throughout the New Testament and there are technical terms for this, but what we call it is the already slash not yet. I'm already new in Him, but I'm not yet new in Him. It's already happened and it has not yet happened. It refers to something that has begun but is not yet completed. So, try to help us understand this. So I have a, a car, I have a Honda sitting out in the parking lot, um, and I say, I own that vehicle. It's my vehicle. Like my wife and I are the only people who can get the keys and go drive it away and not have to ask anybody permission. Like we're really special. We're the only people on the planet that can do that. Uh, it's our car, I own that car. However, <clears throat> There is a bank that gets a payment every month that would argue the point of who really owns that vehicle right now. Just let me stop making payments. My, my wife has a vehicle out there too, and let us stop making payments on her car. Uh, and the Southwest Airlines Credit Union is going to come knocking on our door, and I'm going to say, no, I own that car. They're going to say, no, not really. I, so I already own that car, but I don't yet own that car. Already, not yet. They would show me who really owns that vehicle. Uh, already, not, that's the analogy, already, not yet. Uh, same way with houses. People buy houses and, you know, they get the keys and they make all their Facebook posts. I'm a proud homeowner. I'm like, yeah, not really. <laughs> I don't care if you have the deed. Stop making payments on your property taxes and find out who actually owns that house. It's just like this in God's kingdom. We are already new creatures and we're not yet what we're going to be. God is sovereign over all creation. The kingdom of God is seen in the Old Testament we see His kingdom. The emphasis in the Old Testament is on the nation of Israel. And now in the New Testament, Christ is reigning. And the emphasis is that everybody can be saved. Uh, but at the same time, while we all can be saved, the church awaits this future consummation. The already and not yet dimension of the kingdom of God implies that it is both a given reality and a process that is moving forward, that we're moving towards for a future fulfillment. That's what gives me hope this morning, is that while I'm thankful of what God's done in my life, I'm so glad that this is not the end of it. I'm glad that there's more to life than this. There really is more to life than houses and cars and the rat race and the, all the things, just the cares of life. Jesus talked about the cares of life and warned us about the cares of life because there is something that is just as real, if not more real in the future for those who are sealed with the promise of His Holy Spirit. Revelation 11, <clears throat> this angel 
blows the trumpet and there's a loud voice in heaven and the voice says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. God will someday take full dominion over planet earth. The kingdom is alive on the earth today, but there is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Christ and He will reign here forever. Now, we are living in the last days. We've been living in the last days and I think it's important to stress this because there's a lot of times we'll hear preachers that say, we're in the last days because the newspaper said this happened in the Middle East. We're in the last days because, well, let me tell you biblically what the last days are. The last days begin with the first coming of Christ and will end with the second coming of Christ. This is what the Bible calls the present age or the last days. It is the last days of God's plan and purpose. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's talking about the Old Testament. That's how God spoke. But in these last days, now this was written 2,000 years ago, and the prophet or the writer is saying, we right now are living in the last days. In the last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. So it's the era, the reign of Jesus Christ that defines what the last days are. First Peter, Peter writes, He was foreknown, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. So he's foreknown throughout time, but he's made manifest, meaning he's born on planet earth in the last times for the sake of you. So again, identifying the last days with the time of Jesus Christ. He says it again in 1 Peter 4, I won't read all these, but Hebrews 9, He has appeared once and for all at the end of the age. Again, 2,000 year old statement, it's the end of the age. So we're living at the end of this age and the last days are marked by God's kingdom instituted through local churches. We are living in an age and time of transition. We're moving into an age to come, but we're living on that threshold of moving in from this age into that age. I don't know when it will be. I don't know when Christ will return. No man knows. Lots of preachers have looked foolish trying to pinpoint when this is going to be. Uh, I think it's pretty clear when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, He wasn't lying. He meant what He said. We're not meant to know when He's coming. Um, people for the, especially the last 300 years in Christianity, every generation has thought positive, He has to come back in my generation. And He certainly could. It doesn't mean He can't or He won't, but we simply don't know. So we live like we're going and we live like we're staying. This is something that Jesus and the apostles made <clears throat> very clear. And he, he talked about, Jesus talked about Anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So he's making this line between, hey, there's this present age and there's an age to come. And on and on and on, Scripture talks about the age to come. In the book of Revelation, we're going to get a new name, a new body, and a new home called New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This is the promise of the gospel, is that we are going to receive a new name, a new home, someday a new body. We were going to have a physical body. So this idea that we're all going to be spirits floating around on the clouds someday for all eternity is nowhere in Scripture. It's not Bible. 
The Bible says that we are going to have a body like as unto His glorious body, talking about the body of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus walks on the earth <clears throat> for 33 and a half years, give or take, He has a human body. Jesus is not like a man. He's not imitating. He is a man. It is the man Christ Jesus. He is a human being. He is God manifest in flesh. God is His Father. Mary is His mother. He is the God-man. But after His resurrection, He starts doing things that He never did while he was, before He was crucified. He has a resurrected, glorious body. So the disciples, after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples are terrified. I mean, they've already killed their leader. The logical thing to think is that we're next. They are in a locked room. They're scared. And all of a sudden, it would be like someone appearing in this room without the doors opening. Christ appears in their midst. And I imagine that probably scared them as well. <laughs> I mean, just common sense. I mean, this is, he's on the road to Emmaus with two of his followers and he's talking to them, but they don't recognize him. Uh, they probably haven't seen him. They're, they're Christ followers, they're disciples, but they haven't probably actually seen him because they don't recognize him. Uh, and he's talking to them and all of a sudden he just, he's just gone. He has somewhere else to be and he doesn't have to take a taxi to get there. He starts moving outside the boundaries of time and space. And this is, and then the, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that he's walking with, they stop and they said, you know, it's, it's, that was Jesus. And then they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? Like, yeah, that's why. I mean, we, we were talking to the resurrected Savior. And all of this to say, so Paul knows this, and then Paul says, we're going to have a body like as unto his glorious body. No more aches, no more sorrows, no more pains, no more sorrow. That is a reality. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality for the believer. <clears throat> everything new. The gospel makes everything new. In this new life on this earth, so I don't know what the age to come is going to look like. I don't know. You know, we talk about new heavens, new earth. I think... Paul nails it when he says, Eye is not seen and ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. Like You just don't know. Whatever your vision of heaven is, whatever our idea is, there's just we don't have the mental capacity to comprehend just how glorious that's going to be. But in this life, there are new relationships, there's new possibilities. I love being part of God's kingdom uh, because a lot of that has to do with the new life, the, the way that we live as Christ followers. It's a good way to live. It's a better way to live. The new relationships that you get, uh, everyone in the church matters. The church is the great mixed master because color doesn't matter and ethnicity doesn't matter. Income level is irrelevant. The label in your clothes, uh, you can buy your clothes at Saks Fifth Avenue. There are believers that do. That's fine. There are believers that buy their clothes secondhand. That's fine. It doesn't matter in the kingdom. There, it, none of those things are relevant in the kingdom. The church is the great mixmaster. It is the place where everyone comes together and everyone is completely equal. All sinners saved by grace kneeling at the foot of the cross. It's the wonderful thing about the church. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord our Almighty. 
This is a call for the church to come out and be separate from the world. This is something we don't hear a lot about in Christianity today, but it is Bible. There is a call for the church to come out and stand separate from the world. At the very root of Old Testament holiness is the idea that something is holy because it was set apart. So they had spoons and forks and utensils that were used in the, in the sacrifice of animals. And the priest would have to take these utensils and they would have to dedicate them to God. And so now these utensils were holy. They were set apart. They were sanctified. This wasn't something that someone could just walk in and, and pull out of the drawer and say, I need a fork uh, for my lunch. I'll just use this. No, that fork was set apart. This idea hit me yesterday really strong when I was taking um, some money that has been donated through cash donations. And I was taking this cash and I was putting it in another envelope. I looked at a $20 bill and it dawned on me. And I looked at that $20 bill and I said, this is not an ordinary $20 bill. This $20 bill is holy. It is sanctified. It is set apart for the use to the kingdom. Now to anybody else, they said, well, it's just a $20 bill. No, that $20 bill is sanctified. It is set apart. It is holy. Nothing extraordinary about it, but it is separate. It is dedicated to the purpose of the kingdom. This is why it, people who, and the, the statistics of the amount of fraud that goes on financially in churches um, is alarming. I mean, it's, I don't remember the number, but you, know, you, you would hope it'd be something like 1%, but it's not. It's really up there. And it's why churches, smart churches, have lots of gates and checks and balances and systems of accountability to, to make sure that everybody's on the level. But I thought, who in the world steals from a church? Like, man, you go rob a bank, go knock off a liquor store, whatever, but that money in the church, that is sanctified, that is holy unto the Lord. Uh, that is dedicated to be used something in His purpose. We handle those things very carefully. And this is the call that Paul's making. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And with these verses, they have overtones of the Old Testament. People read this and go, that's kind of Old Testament language. But they're firmly rooted in this new covenant. That which is declared holy by God is always called to separation. In the new covenant, the separation, though, here's the difference. There's a promise. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The promise that comes with separation. That's the joy of holiness. The promise of a relationship with God where He's our Father and we're His children. In the kingdom, everybody has a good father. There's lots of people today who didn't have a good earthly father. Everybody in the kingdom has a good heavenly father. It's one of the things we love about the Lord's Prayer. We come before the Lord and it's easy to gloss over. Because two words and you're, you're past it, but you start out, our Father. Just that reality. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's active. We're hallowing your name. We're honoring you because you're a very good Father to us. This new life we have not only gives us the opportunity for new relationships, it necessitates that we have these relationships. You cannot make it on your own. None of us can live a fulfilled right life and do it in, isol- in isolation from other believers. It can't be done. One of the biggest red flags that causes me concern and triggers a kind of a pastoral care response is when I see somebody isolating themselves. When I see somebody just cutting themselves off from the church. So you know what? They, they need 
If they cut themselves off, fine. You may not need the church that I'm part of. Some people don't think it's smoke unless it's coming out of their stack. I don't want to be one of those people. Like, maybe you can't make it here, but you need to go somewhere and make it. Like, you need to find a body of believers somewhere and attach yourself to them because you cannot make it in isolation. You need the church. I need your encouragement. I need your humanity. I don't just need the, the spiritual you. I need the real you encouraging me, connecting with me. And you need that for me, and you need that with the person next to you. To you. It's one of the dangers with technology. And like, I'm, I'm the technology geek, okay? I, I'm there. I, I like the technology. I'm not isolating myself from that. But one of the dangers of all this technology is that it isolates us. There was a day, some of you wouldn't probably remember this or know this, but there was a day when you go pay, get your gas and you would go inside every single time that you pumped gas that was required. You would pump your gas and you would go in and pay. Uh, I had, you know, $10 on pump five. Uh, so that was a human interaction. But that interaction's gone. Very few people do that today. You're going to pay at the pump. Uh, you're going to, you know, you used to have to go to the bank to get money, and now you can just withdraw to the machine. All this technology causes isolation. And it also causes, kind of as a side note, it causes a lot of people now that are coming up to not really be uh, well-versed and able to communicate to sit down and have an adult conversation. This is one of the, the fallouts of, of all of these signs of progress. But we need the church. We need the fellowship here with one another. I need to see you walk and struggle and fall and get back up because I need to be there when you do to pull you back up. And I need you to do it for me. Fellowship, biblical fellowship is a spiritual act. Fellowship means to share something in common. We fellowship over a common interest, common ground. Our, our fellowship should include seeing God's glory and savoring God's goodness. We exalt together over the things of God. That is fellowship. I can share a story about a good golf game that I had with an atheist. That's not fellowship. That's, I mean, it's a kind of fellowship, but that's not what the Bible is talking about. I can only fellowship with other believers. Now the, the question here, and I think it's a fair question, is does this create exclusivity? Like I can only fellowship with other believers, but aren't we supposed to be reaching lost people? And my answer to that would be, I see in the book of Acts that this is the kind of fellowship that carried the church from 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost to 5,000 Christians just a short time later. If you read the book of Acts, fellowship was central in what they were doing. It planted a movement all over the world with no technology, with no way to spread the word other than organically. It happened. Christianity explodes around the world in a few short decades, and fellowship was a big part of it. The gospel gives us new opportunities. The old man, the old woman, that former self, that, that person's gone. We buried that person in baptism. Old things are passed away, and now it's not I. This is what Paul said, it's not I, but Christ lives within me. I'm not living a new life on my own merit. I didn't just get a ticket to heaven. Um, I have a new life and a new purpose. So we read Romans 6, 1 through 4, this is the next four verses of Scripture. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, 
we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. In other words, everything changes when you come to Christ. There's a fresh start. Nobody gets to go back in time and redo the past. We all wish we could. Every one of us would do things differently, uh, some things differently. But God doesn't allow that. He doesn't allow these redos. With, with all the things, the miracles in the Bible that He does, He never allows somebody to, to go back and, and change things. But what He does allow, and I thank God for this, is He allows new choices that will lead us to new destinations with new possibilities and new opportunities. Your future life, whatever time you have left on this planet, can be drastically different than what your life has been up to this point because of the gospel. That's different than the motivational speaker standing up saying, uh, you know, you can do it, positive self-energy, all of that. No, you can do it because of the gospel, because you are a new creature, a new man in Christ Jesus. Uh, I, my pastor growing up used to say that he would tell people, if they tried to bring up something with, from his past, he'd say, I will walk back to you with you in my life to a certain point when I came to God. And I'll talk about that point. I will not walk past that day. I will not go there with you. He goes, because that was the old man. There's a new man. And I knew things. I, I knew things about his past. I, knew th I know things about his past that I'm pretty sure nobody else in that church knew stuff that he never talked about from the pulpit that he shared with me about his past. And I thought, that's a good statement because there, there, there are things that he wouldn't want to discuss. There's things that he would be drastically embarrassed by. But he'd say, I'll, I'll go back with you to a certain day when I came to Christ. But before then, that man died. I don't know who he is. I'm not, I'm not going to discuss it. I'm not talking about it. Fresh start new choices, new destinations, new possibilities, new opportunities. When you get up tomorrow, it's a new day with new possibilities and the way that you lived yesterday and today does not have to determine how you lived tomorrow. The dominion of sin that is the default position for every single one of us does not have to continue. The self-defeating narratives that play on a loop in our mind can be replaced by a fresh word from God. The newness of life destroys paralyzing fears and it baptizes us with a joy and a peace. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And the glory of the new life is that you never get old. Ask if I have this new life in me. You may ask the question, well, if I have this new life in me, why do I still feel aches and pains and sorrow and disappointed? And the answer is, already and not yet. We're still fighting this body and this flesh and this nature. And we're going to, someday we're going to lay this body down. But for right now, we struggle. We, we fight sin. We fight temptation. We, we fight just us. You know, our biggest enemy is the person, the man or the woman in the mirror. That's our biggest battle. Your new nature is living inside an old vessel. But there's coming a day when you're going to take off this mortality and you're going to put on immortality. This is why Paul asked the question, Death, where is your sting? And grave, where is your victory? 
It doesn't have any because for the child of God, it only gets better and better from this point. There is no, there is no downside to living for God to walking with Him in His kingdom. Everything from here will get better. I know when I was younger, I, the thought and idea of me not living forever in this life just seemed like, well, it's, I know it's a fact, but it's just something that's just so far off that I can't even, I can't even fathom it. Uh, but now, and it's kind of smack dab in the middle of middle age, I go, you know what? This is temporary. Ten years ago and 20 years ago was this age, and 20 years from now, oh my word, I don't even want to think about that. And, uh, but you know what? This is where we have to understand the reality. I am going to live forever. I really am going to live forever. Uh, somewhere in all eternity in a reality that's more real than this. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this. And he said the, the word he used was quiddity, which just means the whatness, the reality of something is going to be greater in the age to come than it is in this age. And Lewis said the, the wetness of the water and the warmth of the sun will be more real in that age than it is in this age today. And I believe that. That's the promise of the believer is that we struggle now, but we have an eternal, eternal hope. I know none of us can grasp that. I know that we don't know what that looks like, but it is a promise and it's a hope that's inside of us. It is a hope that only comes with, for those who place their faith and their confidence in Jesus Christ and allow Him to change us, to transform us, to be born again. Stand together with me this morning. I want to offer a, a prayer for all of us this morning. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here, that is no doubt taking your word and implanting it deep into our hearts and our souls and our spirits. And I pray this morning, Father, that in the days and the weeks to come, that as we go out of these four walls and we encounter once again real life, Lord, that your word will keep us, your word will hold us, you will hold us in your hand, that none of us, Lord, would be released, but Lord, that you would keep your hand upon each and every one of us as decisions are made, Lord, that they would be made uh, taking into consideration your kingdom and your spirit and your word and your purposes for our life, that Lord, you have a purpose, a divine purpose for every single one of us this morning, Lord, that you have a calling on our lives. There is even a call of ministry upon every single life in this place this morning, and I pray today that you would lead us and guide us and direct us. Keep your hand upon us, I pray, for the spirit of peace and joy and love that would permeate individuals and homes and families and relationships, Lord, that you would bless us, draw us together, Lord. Help us to seek shelter and comfort and strength and grace, not just from you, but with one another through fellowship in Christ. And we ask this today in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning.